Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. But wait, there's more. You can now contribute through Venmo and Zelle by using my email address spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Didn't I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode number 417 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Skylab 3, Maximum Effort, Determination, Efficiency, and Accomplishment. The Skylab astronauts took today off. It's their first day off since they went up in space two weeks ago, and they started the day of rest by sleeping two hours longer than usual. Continuing from last time, we will begin with mission day 14 of the second expedition to Skylab. You may recall this was supposed to be the crew's first day off. Instead, Mission Day 14 was of great historical significance for the Apollo telescope mount. On this day, it was used to capture an unprecedented image of the solar corona. You see, the Apollo telescope mount was equipped with an instrument called the white light coronagraph. This was used to hide the extremely bright sphere of the sun behind an occulting disk and image a superimposition of all the visible light wavelengths in the corona. The sun's super bright upper region, which is what we can see on earth with just our eyes, is close to a million times brighter than the much dimmer corona. And the corona can only be seen from Earth during a total solar eclipse. To better explain this, here's a clip of Owen Garriott giving a tour of the Apollo telescope mount and the white light coronagraph. Now to begin with, when I switch to the two positions called H-alpha, these words stand for hydrogen alpha, and they are called hydrogen because the light that we see comes from light radiated by hydrogen atoms in the sun's atmosphere. Now, this light is in the visible wavelength range, and you can actually see these things, uh, these pictures on the ground as well. They're about the only instruments that we have of that nature. And uh, we use them here because we see much of the fine detail on the sun at these wavelengths radiated by the hydrogen atoms. For example, we can see sunspots. We can see network. Uh, We can see filaments. All of these things on the sun in great detail. Now, the next display that I'd like to discuss briefly is a white light coronagraph. Now, this coronagraph also records or images pictures in the visible part of the wavelength. But it has a very unique feature which makes it uh, something that cannot be observed very often from the ground. And this is, it has some occulting discs out in front of the telescope so that the center of the image, the, the disk of the sun, is blotted out. And all we see is the very faint light coming in from the solar corona. Now, those of us on the ground can only see this at those very infrequent intervals when we have a total eclipse of the sun. Now up here, we're essentially looking at a total solar eclipse all day long. And we monitor the changes that occur in the corona. And once we tie all of our uh, pretty missions together here 
series of changes that occur in the solar corona over a period of over five months. And some of the changes are dramatic indeed. Uh, we have, as a matter of fact, recorded some very large transients that occurred in the solar corona. A large bubble of gas was blown outward through the solar corona. It stretched the magnetic field lines out like rubber bands and finally burst the rubber bands and the gas continued far on out into the corona and eventually reached the environment of the Earth. Now, when these uh, uh, gas bubbles uh, do reach the environment of the Earth, they cause some very interesting things which we can see or you can see that the ground. Aurora are one of the most fascinating things that are produced uh, by the arrival of uh, these uh, clouds of gas and magnetic field disturbances. And uh, when they arrive and perturb the Earth's magnetic field, uh, in some way not fully understood. And we've brought back a number of uh, very fascinating uh, views of these sorts of events. Dr. Garriott went on to explain instruments that record in the extreme ultraviolet and instruments that provide data in the X-ray wavelengths. And he talked about that interesting phenomena we call solar flares. Flares, for example, are some of the most outstanding transients. Uh, we've had the good fortune to see several of these since we've been up here in the last four weeks. And uh, when these events occur, we very quickly go over and train all of our instruments on those flares and uh, begin taking photographs as rapidly as possible in as many wavelengths as is possible. And we hope to better understand uh, what produces these flares, uh, what is the size uh, of the flare, and uh, uh, perhaps uh, better understand the mechanism by which these things are produced. On mission day 14, the mission control astronomers saw what looked like the beginning of a solar eruption at visible light wavelengths. And naturally, they told the crew. But since this was a day off for the crew, they were not using the Apollo telescope mount at the time. Garriott recalled, quote, I got there in time to see what is now called a corona mass ejection, or CME, in progress, where the ejected material in the form of an enormous magnetic loop was moving out through the corona, end quote. When Garriott first saw the loop, its height had already reached approximately the width of the sun. And when it peaked a few hours later, it was over three times the sun's diameter. Garriott said, quote, The radial extent of this giant magnetic loop could be measured on our TV screen. Then, on the next orbit, about 93 minutes later, obviously stretched out much farther, and it could be measured again. A simple calculation allowed the minimum speed of the ejection to be estimated, which turned out to be about 500 kilometers per second. At that speed, it would reach the Earth in about three days. As far as I know, this is the first visual observation of this phenomena ever made. End quote. Since coronal mass ejections are capable of having a significant impact on Earth when they reach the planet, the groundbreaking work performed on day 14 toward better understanding CMEs has had lasting benefits to humanity. Garriott remembered getting immediate feedback on day 14 from his wife on a phone call. He said, quote, I had a telephone visit with the family at our home in Nassau Bay. The wives brought us up to date on local news. For example, they told us that the TV reports and the solar scientist comments seemed quite enthused about the flare observations. The phone calls were our pipeline to the real world, end quote. Now changing the subject to the astronaut's physical condition. Somewhat disturbingly, all three crew members had reached the top end of normal for hemoglobin levels. Now Garriott believed this could have been due to the loss of water in weightlessness and a reduced total blood volume in circulation. Bean did admit 
that he had to make a conscious effort to avoid becoming dehydrated, saying, quote, The thing that I noticed for myself is, I had to make myself drink water, because I wasn't thirsty then. And then the next day, I would have less energy. My urine volume would be low. And it finally dawned on me that I was getting dehydrated because I just wasn't thirsty. So it got to where every time I came near the table, I'd take a drink, even when I didn't want it. And that helped. But I would fall back. After about four or five days of drinking water, maybe the fifth day, I would not do it so much. I'd get complacent. Then I'd notice on the sixth day that I got tired early, and then I would remember my low urine volume that morning. I remember this as being a continual problem for me. End quote. Bean also admitted that during the entire mission, he had to make a serious effort to stay in good physical condition and not allow his desire for productivity to push him past the point of exhaustion. Bean recalled, quote, Every day I remember trying to do as much as we could that day without hurting the next day. I'd say to myself, Uh-oh, I worked too long. I was on the edge of fatigue each day at the end of the day. And if I didn't get the sleep and food and water I needed, then I'd be fatigued the next day. I always felt like I was right on the edge, and I had to be really careful to keep myself healthy in order to do the next day the best I could and feel really good all the next day and be in a good mood. People get in a bad mood. I think, if they get tired and fall behind. End quote. On mission day 15, the crew was beginning to hit its stride. One of Albine's most important goals was to be as productive as possible. Naturally, the difficulties they had experienced earlier in the mission were a disappointment to him. Bean and his crew were working hard now to become more efficient and it seemed they were about to achieve their goal. As Bean put it, quote, We were in there working as best we could, and we were following the flight plan accurately. We were following our checklist, and as a result, we were getting a lot of things done. I felt like it took us until around day 16 to really be as efficient as we ever could be. That was my feeling. And also, looking at the data later on, we began to be pretty good at it. End quote. Lousma added, quote, So we sat down and had a crew meeting and decided that we needed to have an inventory from the ground as to where we were and what we had to do to catch up. End quote. Bean added, quote, Maybe... At a third of the way through, or fourth of the way through, we called the ground and asked how we were doing. I knew we'd fallen behind because of being sick, and I thought maybe they'd tell us we'd done 90% so far of what we should be doing. And they told us we'd done 50%, 60%, something shocking. Well, we knew we weren't going back to Earth doing 50%. They will have to shoot us down because we aren't going back till we've done the best we can do. We were going to find a way. And that is when we kind of decided we were going to have to do things differently because we had to catch up. At least we all thought so. So we began to try to be more efficient. You know, we thought we were being efficient, but this motivated us to become more so. End quote. Now, 
Everything the crew could think of was done to increase efficiency. For example, the crew stopped eating all of their meals together so that two crew members would be working at all times. Every morning, just as soon as the crew woke up, one of them would begin operating the Apollo telescope mount station, while the others went about their morning routine. Before long, Bean realized that Garriott was the best of the three at operating the Apollo telescope mount console. So, he and Lousma began swapping duties with Garriott so that Owen could man the Apollo telescope mount more. The crew, but mostly Bean, began working to move items to and from storage during the day to shorten some of the amount of time that had to be spent on housekeeping. Finally, the crew became efficient enough to get all the work done that was scheduled for a given day. But that did not make up for the time lost at the beginning of the mission. Reaching 100% efficiency was not enough for Bean. Bean recalled, quote, We began to try to get housekeeping done before it was scheduled, so we could say to them, We've already got the trash thrown out for tomorrow. We've already got the food moved. Go ahead and put us on the Apollo telescope mount. As I remember, we had to convince them to give us more work. We were ahead, and then they would call up, and they wouldn't have anything new the next day, and we would be twiddling our thumbs. We were ready to go, but they hadn't geared up for us yet. I remember us talking with them for about two or three days before Mission Control finally said, Okay, let's give them a lot more work. We then got going. And so we were just zipping around there as good as we could from wake until rest before sleep. Because you just can't stop working and go to sleep. We knew that you had to kind of take 30 minutes or an hour. We were working all the time except Sundays. Then we began to work Sundays after a while because there wasn't anything to do. At least I felt that way. What are we going to do? Sit around and just look? Not likely. We had trained hard for two and a half years, and we are going to make the most of our limited days, only 56 in space, at least as much as we could. So we got going. End quote. Very shortly later, the ground had to work to keep up with the crew. As Jack Lousman recalled, quote, We got so good at what we were doing that it took so much less time than they had anticipated that we asked for more work, and that's where they devised the Earth observation experiments. Can you see this? Can you see that? What can you see physically or visually from space? We would photograph those places and report on them. Every mission after that, I don't know if they'd do it anymore, but shuttle missions had Earth observations, briefings, and some special things to look for. So that was all derived as a result of our mission. Well, I guess we're crossing the northern border of the U.S. right about now. Uh, over Montana. Lousma continued. They also jury-rigged some additional experiments using hardware that we had on board. They had some kind of experiment that had to do with transfer of fluids. It was not one we had planned to do. The point is that they gave us extra work to do things that we hadn't planned on doing. So we actually ended up with more experiments than we started with. End quote. Productivity was at an all-time high, and even requesting jobs to increase the daily workload. One such task was the behavior of bubbles in zero-g. 
and we will uh, try to cause the perturbation to do it again. Now you see the oscillations uh, are much less damped and uh, it exhibits almost all of the three modes of oscillation that you would expect for uh, uh, more or less a ball of liquid like that. You will spin up those oscillations again by just blowing an air jet. Okay, there it's pretty floating. There were also demonstrations of angular momentum, magnetic effects, a Wilberforce pendulum. There was even an attempt to find out about the aerodynamics of a paper airplane without gravity. Apart from hard work and dedication, how was the crew able to catch up with their work? Jack Lausma believed it was because how well they got along. He said, quote, I think our crew was somewhat remarkable in that we were such good friends. We trained for two and a half years, and I don't ever remember a crossword. I don't remember one during the mission or since, end quote. As the crew became more efficient at their task, they also became more efficient at zero-g maneuverability. After 15 days in space, the astronauts had become acclimated to the unique acrobatics that microgravity allowed. Garriott commented, quote, For an unusual experience, one could walk around upside down on the ceiling of the laboratory area. It was fun to play Spider-Man and walk around on the ceiling or elsewhere. End quote. While the entire crew had gotten their space legs by this point, it was Al Bean whose microgravity maneuvering was the most impressive. Garriott recalled, quote, I was amazed at how proficiently Al performed flips, twists, and other acrobatics while jogging around the ring of lockers in the orbital workshop. While Jack and I looked every bit the novices we were, only after inquiring did I find out that Al had been a gymnast in college. If only we could submit video instead of personal appearances, we might have had a shot at the next Olympics, end quote. In addition to the ring of lockers, the long straight layout of the pressurized volume of Skylab provided another source of fun for the crew. Owen described it as, quote, another challenge was to launch oneself at modest speed all the way from the bottom of the living and experiment deck and try to pass through the orbital workshop, the airlock module, the multiple docking adapter, and reach the command and service module without touching anything. A floating distance of some 50 feet with narrow hatches between each module. With practice, we could all do it. Sometimes. End quote. According to Al Bean, Mission Day 16 started with a thriller. As you know, Skylab used gyroscopes to maintain its attitude. Unfortunately, these gyroscopes were occasionally problematic. The failure of the gyros on Mission Day 16 was particularly memorable for Al Bean who in the heat of the moment did not follow procedure. Al recalled, quote, I remember the time we lost attitude control. The alarm went off, maybe even in the night. I don't even remember when it was. We had a procedure if it did go off, and I can remember not following that procedure. It's one of those deals where you make someone else follow the procedure, but when you're there, you don't have to do it, End quote. Instead of following procedure and trying to regain attitude control with the control moment gyros, 
Bean opted for the faster method of using the station's thrusters. The problem with this is the fuel for the thrusters was very limited and could not be replenished. Quite a bit of that fuel had been used when Skylab was rolling before the first crew arrived. Bean said, quote, I can remember not following the procedure and wasting some of the gas, wasting some of that to zero out the rate gyros instead of doing other things. I can remember the ground didn't say anything. Then later, about a day later, they came up with a new procedure, just in case, which really was the same procedure except... Why would you guys do what you did? At the time I threw that switch, I knew it was the wrong thing to do. It was too late then. It didn't even seem right then. It just seemed like the expedient thing. We solved the problem quickly that way, but it wasn't a good thing to do. I can remember me throwing that switch and thinking at the time it was a bad idea. End quote. Mission days 17 through 22 passed pretty normally for the crew as they continued to catch up to their schedule and request more work. But when the crew was not busy working on their scheduled tasks, they still had to do the routine task of just living on board Skylab. While most of the time was devoted to experimentation, a part of the astronauts' day was spent on the more mundane aspects of living. There were meals to prepare, cleaning, taking out the garbage, equipment repairs, personal hygiene, and always the exercise. Although a few hours away from the routine was rare, it usually found expression in the novelty of zero-G. Speaking of personal hygiene, Bean made a rather interesting entry in his diary of his not-so-pleasant experience with the shower. Bean wrote, quote, The shower was cooler than I like it. The biggest surprise was how the water clung to my body. A little like jello in that it doesn't want to shake off. It built up around the eyes, in the nose and mouth, and it gave a slight feeling of trying to breathe under water. I would shake the head violently and the water would drop away. Not down, but in all directions. Some to cling to other parts of my body some to the shower curtain, some sort of distended the water where they were and snapped back. The soap on the face stayed and diluted with rinse water that tasted sour when I opened my mouth. The little vacuum has sufficient pull but is rigid and will not conform to the body, so it does not do too well there, but is okay on the inside walls, floor, and ceiling. Jack had said it was better to slide my hands over my body and scrape the water off and over to the shower wall. This worked for hair, arms, and legs, but it was difficult for my body, especially my back. Two towels were required to dry off because the water did not drain. End quote. Every day was highlighted by something interesting. To demonstrate this, I wanted to quickly cover a few excerpts from the crew's diary entries for mission days 17 through 22. First, here's Bean expressing some concern about the safety of the Skylab. From Mission Day 17, Bean wrote, We had looked last night for the Perseid meteor shower, with them burning up below us. Did not see any, 
to hit the atmosphere to make a shooting star, they all fly past us with no meteoroid shield. Hope we do not contact any one of them. End excerpt. By day 18, the crew was beginning to understand that living in space for a long term would affect some bodily functions. On mission day 18, Bean wrote, Boy, oh boy, have I been farting today. You must learn to handle more gas up here. And I wondered if we would forget when we went home. Owen said, Can't you just see Jack in his living room with all his family and friends around and he forgets? End excerpt. Of all the days spent on the station, Mission Day 18 was the angriest for Owen Garriott. Bean described his experience in his diary as follows. Owen got his ego bent last night. He had been conscientious about weight loss, wanting more food and salt. Peanuts are a favorite. Dr. Paul Buchanan called on his weekly conference and told Owen that Jack and I were doing okay, but he needed to have a chat with him. Paul said, Owen, we have been looking at your exercise data over the last two days and don't think you're doing enough. Maybe your heart isn't in it. Well, Owen just about flipped out because he takes great pride in his physical program. Pound for pound, he does more than Jack and I. He could hardly hold back. Afterward, he worked out till sweat was all over his body, then called on the recorder to tell Paul and those other doctors the facts of the matter. It was the maddest I've ever seen him in months. End excerpt. Well, it turned out that the ground had not yet read the data off the recorder, and the issue was smoothed out later. On mission day 18, Garriott complained of seeing bright flashes. He wrote, Bright flashes occasionally. Always dark adapted. Believe have seen with eyes open. Usually spots not necessarily pinpoints. Occasionally a longer streak. Only one eye at the time. End excerpt. Of course, if you have listened to the Apollo episodes, you already know what Owen was seeing. The bright flashes of light were energetic particles passing through the retina, creating a flash that the crew could see. It occurred most often when the Skylab was near the South Atlantic Anomaly, where the Earth's magnetic field is a bit weaker. Here, trapped energetic particles can dip down to lower altitudes, like that at which the Skylab orbited. As you recall, the Apollo astronauts reported the same thing. If there was any doubt as to the dedication and hard-working attitude of this crew, Jack Lausma put that to rest on day 19. Bean wrote in his diary, In a way, spaceflight is rewarding, but on a day-to-day, it is awfully frustrating. Jack today spent the whole night pass taking star moon and star horizon sightings on his own time to satisfy an experiment. When the pass was over, 20 marks were made. He was debriefed, and as he was talking, he said, Well, I did those sightings with the clear window protector still on. He had not noticed it in the dark. The data would be off by some small amount, and that just didn't suit Jack. He told the experimenter on record that he would repeat them later. Index cert. And finally, on mission day 22, Bean got the news he and his crew 
had been working so hard to accomplish. He wrote, Our first real day off. Best news was in the morning science report where it was said we would catch up with all our Apollo telescope mount science, as well as the corollary experiments, except for medical, which was reduced by 25 hours the first half of the mission. We would do the rest. I called and discussed the additional blood work and histology and urine analysis that Owen had been doing and warning them to count that. End quote. Through the first three weeks, after a very challenging start to the mission, a loss of two thrusters, their space adaptation sickness, a possible rescue mission, and equipment malfunctions, this crew had somehow gotten back on schedule. NASA Administrator Jim Fletcher and Deputy Administrator George Lowe sent the crew this message on the teletype. Quote, we have been watching and listening as the three of you live and work in space. Your performance has been outstanding, and the observations that you are making are of tremendous importance. Through your efforts, Skylab 3 is a great mission. Keep up the good work. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host. I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 417 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Skylab 3, Maximum Effort, Determination, Efficiency, and Accomplishment. Our next episode should be released on or about July 13th, 2023. If you would like to be notified by email when new episodes are posted, you can subscribe to the blog by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and typing in your email in the text box. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 235 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. If you would like to follow me on Twitter, my handle is at SpaceRocketHist, and you can follow on Facebook by searching for Space Rocket History. You can also keep up with me on Patreon at patreon.com slash history. Okay, in afterthoughts, as always, I want to apologize for my mispronunciation. What an impressive crew that was. To start out the mission with a leaking quad pack and then space sickness, equipment problems, a possible rescue mission, and after all that, to somehow catch up with their schedule. Then they asked for more work. What an industrious crew. Not a lazy one in the bunch. I guess you always hope that the astronauts get along, but I think this group really did. They were good friends, and uh, they got along well. The second crew of Skylab, so far, has done an outstanding job. You know, I really enjoy reading those diary entries of the crew. It gives you a real uncensored idea about what is going on and the experiences they had and how they felt about that. I'm getting these entries out of the book, Homesteading Space, which is a really good book. It's detailed and it's interesting. And the Skylab, is, it kind of gives you the Skylab experience from the perspective of the astronauts. Now, I only take a few excerpts from those diaries 
the diary parts, but I use the whole book. It's, it's a really good book. But from the diaries, I just pick excerpts from them. So what you are hearing are not all the details. <laughs> now, this one kind of struck me as funny, and I'll read this one very quickly here. This is from uh, Albine on Mission Day 17. Quote, had bad experience today. Sneezed while urinating. Bad on earth. Disaster up here. End quote. <laughs> this, this is the real unvarnished truth of their experience. And I really appreciate the honesty here. A couple of episodes ago, I recommended a movie called Marooned. Well, listener and supporter of the podcast, Colin S., wrote in with some feedback about the movie. What makes his email particularly interesting to me is he used to work at the Cape where some of that movie was filmed. So I'm going to read an excerpt from his email. Excerpt begins. Thanks again for the podcast and thanks for the movie Marooned suggestion. We watched it yesterday. I thought it was really good. I know they didn't get everything right, but it was enjoyable. I guess part of what I liked was that it showed some things that I didn't think were ever in a movie. It had a lot of Titan footage. That is primarily where I worked at my time at the Cape. It showed the VIB, Vehicle Integration Building, the SMAB, Solid Motor Assembly Building, the ITL area, Integrate Transport Launch, the transporter with the dual train engines to move it out to the launch pad. They also showed Launch Complex 41 with the MST, Mobile Service Tower, rolling backwards. That is the 300 plus foot building that basically surrounds the rocket while being prepped and is moved out of the way for launch. It's a bit weird to be on that while moving. Something that big shouldn't move like that. My wife and daughter kept laughing at me, in a good way, because I would pause the movie to look at different things and point things out. I've attached a couple pictures. Sorry they aren't too good. I'll share a bit of a funny story. In the picture with the Titan launching, the large building with the four large doors in the foreground is the VIB. That is where they would erect the Titan core onto the transporter. From the perspective in the picture on the back upper right hand corner at the top of the VIB was an enclosed viewing area for Air Force VIPs. As you can see, it was a great spot to watch Titan launches, but also looking further left are pads 39A and B, so it was a great shuttle viewing as well. The room wasn't very large, and it had a large window facing the launch complex with a countertop and room for around eight people to sit and watch. Well... Being this was the top corner of the building, there was an I-beam that came down at an angle and blocked two or three of the viewing positions. One of the Air Force bigwigs didn't like that beam there because it blocked the view and wanted it removed. He wasn't a happy camper when he was told no, since it was integral to the structure. <laughs> Ah, the good old days. Excerpt ends. Thank you, Colin, for writing in. I really enjoy hearing from the people who have worked for NASA and experienced this space rocket history that I spend so much time talking about. Finally, in personal news, the crops are still growing. The garden is growing. <laughs> got a lot of weeds, though. We got more rain. We have also... We didn't really do it, but there is also a new crack in the basement wall this time, on the wall, 
in the basement, on the wall, right through three cinder blocks. And then it contacts the window. So that was pretty disappointing. And rest assured, the cracks in the basement floor are still slowly growing wider. The outdoor portion of the heat pump is beginning to resemble the Leaning Tower of Pisa. I would say it's leaning at least, I would say 20 degrees. No one wants to take any responsibility for that one. Of course, there has been no word from the builder as to when they are coming to fix all the other problems. So, on the positive side, now that Mrs. SRH is out of school for the summer, my daily meals have greatly improved. I'm enjoying some very good food. <laughs> a fella could get used to this, I'm telling you. She's a good cook, and, and uh, she has the time to do some cooking, and boy, I'm enjoying that. Over the past fortnight, we received six donations and pledges. I would like to thank Ben M. from Aberfoyle Park, South Australia, who donated at the Salyut Skylab level and earned a satellite emoji. Aberfoyle Park is the way I looked it up to be pronounced. That's probably wrong, and I do apologize. Hanaeus M. donated at the Apollo level. Joseph B. donated at the Apollo level. John E. from California donated at the Mercury level and earned a shooting star emoji. Mark U. from South Dakota pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level and earned an alien emoji. David W. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. Thank you so much. Our total Patreon donors for 2023 have somehow got back up to 243 just in time for the month to change and for people's credit cards to expire. And as usual, we will lose donors as the month changes. So if you think your credit card might be expiring and if you have time, Please go over there and check and make sure or just look at your card and see, is it expiring this month? Well, and that's the case, and then it won't, uh, Patreon won't uh, bill it, right, or need, nobody will. So if you wouldn't mind checking that out or keeping track of that, we certainly would appreciate it. Our total donors, which includes Patreon, PayPal, Venmo, Zelle, and Checks, for 2023 have reached 314 with an overall goal of 454 this year. Now we're at 314 and we're halfway through the year. So you might say, Hey, that's pretty good. But we brought a bunch of those donors in from last year's PayPal. So at this position, we're running that a little bit behind still on 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 the uh, overall donation. So we we hope to reach four fifty. We lowered that goal last year because we uh, didn't even make five hundred. We didn't make five hundred. We didn't make four fifty. I think we made four forty four or something like that. So we are running behind on donors. So if you would en- if you are enjoying this podcast. That's been running now for over 10 years without commercial interruptions. Why don't we have commercial interruptions, you may ask? Because I don't like commercial interruptions. I want you to have the total effect of the podcast. Once I start the podcast, I want it to be continuous, not broken up. That's why we do it. I've had plenty, and I continue to get plenty of opportunities to put in advertisements. And I just don't want to do that. I like it this way. I like it to be listener-supported. So, I haven't done that, and I'm not really planning on doing that. So, if you would like to donate, you can go to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link, or you can donate by check, donate on Venmo, 
Arzell using my email address, spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Now, here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's Donor Giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, Space Rocket History friends. If you'll allow me, I'd like to share a little story with you. Perhaps you will find it funny. I went to the hairdresser this week, and before going, Mike suggested that I go blonde. Blonde's not my natural color, but in the past, I was blonde for more than a decade. I like keeping my hair, my gray hairs colored, and I have been a redhead, and more recently, back to my natural brunette. I was not sure what my hairdresser could pull off. Going blonde again? Hmm. Well, she did a great job of covering my gray and giving me blonde highlights. I love it, and I was thrilled to show Mike. I can be bopping in, and much to my surprise, Mike looked at me, and he chuckled, and he said he was just kidding about me going blonde. <laughs> I am surely glad I have a good hairstylist, and it turned out good. You would think, after all these years that we have been together, I would know when he was kidding. Hmm. <laughs> well. Sure, I'm glad it turned out well. Now, back to the drawing. The winner for this episode will get the choice of the rare and beautiful SRH archive magnet, or the regular magnet, or two stickers, or a NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Joseph Schwader. Joseph Schwader, if you'll email us, spacerockethistory at gmail.com, tell us your address and your prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Please accept my apologies if I mispronounced your name. Sincere thanks to all of you who have contributed thus far in 2023. My sources for this episode were NASA, Homestead in Space, The Skylab Story by David Hitt, NBC News, Skylab, Our First Space Station by Leland Bailu, Skylab, America's Space Station by David Shaler, Outpost on the Frontier by J. Chaladic. The Internet Archive, Flickr, and Wikipedia. And that is all I have for this episode. I will try to have episode 418 posted on or about July 13th. Happy Independence Day and so long for now. <laughs>